for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We hope you can join us to celebrate Reformation Day 2021 on October 30th in Louisville, Kentucky. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches invites you to a one-day conference featuring Pastor Sam Waldron, Ron Miller, and Ben Carlson, who will be speaking on Solus Christus, or the Doctrine of Salvation by Christ Alone. To learn how you can attend in person or via live stream, visit marbach.org slash Christalone. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. The act of creation is described in the Bible uh, as in terms of singing. It was when the morning stars sang together, Job 38.7. Since that time, God in his providence and his government of the world has said, let there be all kinds of singing and music. He has said, let there be love songs, laments for the dead, ballads for the brave, and let there be hymns of praise to me. He's also ordained that just as there should be a great variety of songs, there should be a great variety of music. Out of his creative providence has sprung all sorts of musical instruments and all sorts of musical geniuses. In the world, we enjoy everything from brass bands to Bach and much more stuff that you know about that I probably don't. Singing and music are wonderful gifts of God made for us to enjoy. Indeed, there's a great deal of Christian liberty with regard to this matter. Though some may push this matter of their liberty way beyond what is good for them or edifying to their brethren, still, without question, there's great liberty to enjoy the good gifts of God. Christians may enjoy sacred conference, the singing of biblical psalms, the talents of great musicians, gospel quartets, soloists, duets, trios. All these are good gifts to be enjoyed. And with discretion, Christians may also enjoy all sorts of secular music. Care must be taken not to defile ourselves with the music of the world, but there is a place for all these things in the rich life that God has given to his people. But we are not talking about that in these messages. We are not dealing in these messages on corporate worship with the liberty Christians have to enjoy God's good gifts in their own lives as they see fit. We are not speaking here of the concert hall. We're speaking of the church. We are asking what God has appointed about this matter for His own house. He's not asking what music we can play in our house. He's, asked, he's telling us what music we should sing in His house. And this is the reason Paul wrote to Timothy to tell him, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the house of God. In the world we have Christian liberty within the limits of God's laws. In God's house we have God's rule for his worship. 
Now the question we have set for ourselves in this message, and the last one, is simply this. What has God said about the singing of praise to himself in his worship? This is the 14th message on how then we should we worship, and we come tonight to continue the seventh prescribed element or part of the church's corporate worship. I have entitled this part of worship, The Singing of Psalms and Hymns and Spiritual Songs. We dealt with the first two Ps last week, the precedent for the singing of praise and the purposes for the singing of praise. And we saw that there is warrant in the Bible for singing in God's house, and we saw that that there are actually two purposes for this singing. It is not just to praise God, but it is to minister to men. Now in this hour, we come to our third and last P, but not to finish it, because we come to the practice of the singing of praise. And under this heading, I want to answer several questions and only the first of them tonight. And that first question is, does the regulative principle of worship, does the word of God require in scripture that we sing only biblical psalms? This practice of singing only biblical psalms in worship is called exclusive Psalmody. Some of you may not have known that. Now, in answering this question, I have to answer several sub-questions, and so let me tell you where we are going. What is exclusive psalmody, is the first question. Why should we take your valuable time to deal with it, is the second question. How must the question be answered, is the third question. And what are the major arguments against it? And that's the last question. First of all, what is exclusive psalmody? Some of you may know what it is, but let me tell you again. There are those who believe that in the worship of God, only the 150 psalms contained in the book of Psalms should be sung. There are two versions of this view. The stricter version says only the 150 biblical psalms. Other versions may allow that some other hymns and songs recorded in the Bible may also be sung. Now, for some of you, this is a really live issue. You know about this issue, you've thought about this issue, you care about this issue, one way or the other. For the rest of you, you're wondering, what is this all about? Well, the last thing I want to do is caricature or misrepresent this position. It's been held, this idea that we only sing biblical psalms in worship by great and good men. In fact, it's been, it's been, it was held by someone that I call, have called sometimes my Protestant patron saint. And that man is Professor John Murray. And I, I want to honor these men. I certainly don't want to caricature them. And I want to give you Murray's position right now. So you understand uh, this. John Murray, if you don't know that name, was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century in the Reformed faith. And here's his summary. One, there is no warrant in Scripture for the use of uninspired human compositions and the singing of God's praise in the public worship. Two, there is explicit authority for the use of inspired songs. 
Three, the songs of divine worship must therefore be limited to the songs of Scripture, for they alone are inspired. And then he does something after several more statements. He comes to number seven. He says, in view of uncertainty with respect to the use of other inspired songs, we should confine ourselves to the book of Psalms. So, while there's theoretical allowance that we might be able to sing other parts of Scripture, actually, and in practice, we should only sing this. So, that's the position. The issue is then, whether or not we should sometimes sing the song, pardon me, let me say that again. The issue is not, I get myself in big trouble when I leave off the word not sometimes. The issue is not, the issue is not whether we should sometimes sing the Psalms of Scripture. Of course we should. Of course we should sing the Psalms of Scripture. That's not what I'm arguing tonight. The issue is not what we might call inclusive psalmody, sometimes saying the Psalms of Scripture as a church. The Psalms of Scripture are full of comfort. They present a vastly more realistic view of the Christian life than most of the nonsense that comes along in contemporary worship songs. But the issue is not inclusive psalmody. The issue is not whether we should sing the psalms. The issue is, with regard to exclusive psalmody, the issue is whether we should sing only biblical psalms. So that's the first question. What is exclusive psalmody? It is the idea that we sing only the biblical psalms that has been held by great and good men in the history of the church. The second question is one that I think I have to raise because you're probably asking me it already. Why are you taking our time to deal with this issue? Don't you realize we made a great effort to come to church tonight and to have, uh, uh, you're taking our time to deal with this issue of exclusive psalmody. What is up with that? Well, yeah, that's right. Why waste our time with such an issue? And here are my reasons, okay? First of all, uh, some of those with whom we would agree most strongly about the fact that the Word of God must specially regulate our worship held this position. And if we're going to hold that position, we certainly must be interested in why it doesn't lead us to that as well. Secondly, one major practical objection to the regulative principle and the idea that God's Word regulates our worship is that some people say it leads right to this idea of exclusive psalmody. Now that's old-fashioned, it's rigid, it's impossible, and that's where the regulative principle leads you, and so it must be wrong. Well, okay. Uh, for both those reasons, and for others besides, I want to show you tonight that the regulative principle doesn't lead us to exclusive psalmody, it leads us in exactly the opposite direction. And I want to say this uh, again. This is why in our evening service we focus more on our church family and I feel more comfortable. I, I want you to know, I would probably not ever preach this message in morning worship. Not because it's not Bible, but because I view that as a more public time in which we want to focus on uh, central gospel issues. But there has to be a time in the life of the church where we talk about issues like this. And when are we going to do it? I don't think in our morning worship, but the evening worship is focused on our church family. That's what our evening worship is about. Uh, it's about the Lord's table. It's about praying for one another. And it's about dealing 
with issues like this. So you visitors with us, uh, welcome to be here. We're glad you're here. But this is why we're preaching on this in this kind of context. So that's why we should take the time to deal with it. Now here's another question. How must the question be answered? How must the question be answered? That is to say, on what basis must the question be answered? What rules should govern us when we try to answer the question of exclusive psalmody? What should be our basis for answering this question? Well, of course, the obvious answer is the Bible. Sola Scriptura, the Word of God alone, tells us how we ought to worship. And so we have to go to the regulative principle, the Bible alone, for the answer to this question. But this raises another question related to it, and that is the question of the burden of proof. If you do much arguing, you know the, most of the time the issue is settled by who gets the burden of proof. Who has to prove their position? Who, is, who, who gets the presumption of being right? Who has to prove that they're wrong? Well, the question then is this. Uh, who does the burden of proof fall on with regard to exclusive psalmody? Does the burden of proof fall on the advocate of exclusive psalmody? If it does, then the question is, do have warrant in Scripture for the doctrine of exclusive psalmody? Or does the burden of proof fall on the one who rejects exclusive psalmody? Then the question would be, do we have warrant in Scripture for singing something other than the inspired psalms found in the Bible? You see, which, which way you take is going to make a big difference. The one who holds exclusive psalmody will argue that the burden of proof is rests on the one who wants to sing something other than the biblical psalms. Proof from the Bible that we have to sing, that we may sing something other than biblical psalms. That person will say that it's clear that we should sing the biblical psalms, and that we have clear warrant for that. He will say that it's safe to sing inspired biblical psalms, but it's not safe to sing other uninspired hymns unless we have clear warrant for that in the Bible. Now, I'm not sure how to answer this question. I'm really not sure who the burden of proof should fall on. It seems to me there's something valid about saying to the one who wants to say we should only sing biblical psalms, you have to prove that from the Bible. On the other hand, I can see a little bit their point. So I'm not going to answer that complete question tonight. I'm going to assume the burden of proof. I'm going to assume that it's my job to prove that we should sing uh, something other than the biblical psalms in our worship. And I don't know if it's, I have to do that. I don't know if, I, as if it's my duty to do that, but I'm going to do it for the sake of argument. <clears throat> Jeff Smith, Pastor Jeff Smith, some of you heard his ministry last summer at the family conference. Uh, he says this, The scriptures never say anywhere that the Old Testament book of Psalms was given to be the definitive hymn book of the church for all time. Indeed, the scriptures are given to be our sole rule of faith and life, but the scriptures never say that the Psalter is to be our only source of Christian praise. I think Pastor Smith is right, and I think that if he's right, uh, and uh, the burden of proof is on the exclusive psalmodist, then 
there is an end of the argument, and the cause of the exclusive psalmist is lost. But as I say, I'm going to assume the burden of proof tonight, and I'm going to give you six major arguments, assuming the burden of proof, from the regulative principle, against the idea of exclusive psalmody. Are you ready? Because here we go. What are the major arguments against it? First, the exclusive psalmists themselves do not actually sing inspired psalms. Now, if you read the literature, and I have, <laughs> if you read uh, the people that advocate this position, they'll constantly say, we should only sing inspired psalms in worship. Only inspired, only inspired, only inspired. That's fine if they themselves did it. But they don't. Now that might say like an unbelievable, seem like an unbelievable thing to say. But this exclusive psalmist litter their writings with the idea that we must sing only inspired psalm. And I have to say that they don't actually do this. The fact is, and it's a very, princip- a very uh, basic principle of the evangelical faith, the fact is that we do not believe in the inspiration of any English translation of the Bible. You don't? No. Um, Evangelicals believe, conservative evangelicals believe, what the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy said. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy is the great 20th century defense of the inspiration of the Bible. But it does not defend the idea that any English translation, whether the ESV or the KJV or any other English translation, is inspired. You see, what's the point? Well, you see, exclusive psalmists are going to have to go back and learn Hebrew and sing the original Hebrew text of the psalms in order to sing inspired psalms. Now, it's not just 20th century evangelicals that said that only the Bible and the original languages and the text as they came from the pens of the original Hebrew and Greek authors is inspired. Our own confession says that. Well, I need a, I need a hymn book. And I want you to turn in the hymn book because I want you to see this. To the confession of faith in the back. <clears throat> and the page I want you to turn to is page 671. Chapter 1, paragraph 8 of the Confession of Faith of this Church. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, 
And the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by a singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. The point is, we do not believe in the inspiration of any translation of the Psalms. We do not believe in the inspiration of any metrical arrangement of the Psalms for singing. We believe in the inspiration of the original Hebrew and Greek. Now, the point is not just that in any, even the best and most faithful translation of the Psalms, uh, for singing, that many words and phrases are added in the original text of Scripture rearranged. That's true, but that's not my point. The point is that every translation of the Bible into English uh, is, is the work of some human translator and is based upon the art and the science of biblical translation. And those translators are not inspired. And the, and the Christian faith and our faith has never said that they were. It's the Bible and the original Hebrew and Greek that's inspired. And therefore the claim to sing inspired psalms simply contradicts our confession of faith and contradicts the right doctrine of this matter in the Bible. Now, this does not mean, and our confession of faith goes on to say this, that we don't have faithful, valuable translations of the Bible into the English language. But it is to say that the claim to sing inspired psalms requires us to learn Hebrew. Because English translations of the Bible, any English translation of the Bible, no matter how faithful, is not inspired itself. Strictly speaking, only the original Hebrew and Greek are inspired. Now, do we have a word of God faithfully? Do we know what the Bible teaches? Of course we do. But the point is, that's not what the exclusive psalmists are claiming. They're not saying that we must sing things that are scriptural. They're saying that we must sing, sing, sing things that are inspired. And that is simply impossible unless you learn the original Hebrew. Second, we are commanded in the Bible to worship in spirit and truth. Look at John 4.24. Some of you may remember several months ago when I expounded this text. John 4.24, which says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now this means that we must worship God with the heart. And this means that we must worship God according to the word of God, according to truth. But as I showed you in the context, it also means that we must worship God in terms of gospel fulfillment and not in terms of the types and shadows of the law. The whole context here is full of this movement from the types and shadows of the law to the New Testament. Look at verse 21. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His. Worshippers, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who calls called Christ, when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. See the language of the hour is coming and now is. The hour is coming and now is. I who speak to you am He. This is what it means to worship in spirit and truth. Not in terms of the types and shadows of the law, but in terms of the fulfillment which came in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus means by worshiping in spirit and truth. And this is a command then to worship God and go beyond what we have in the Old Testament. Now, if you uh, will allow this, it means that the book of Psalms is an inadequate hymn book for the church of Jesus Christ. The exclusive psalmist will certainly say that the book of Psalms must be sung in light of Christian fulfillment. That's true. Yet, even if it's sung in light of New Testament revelation... This still assumes that the Christian interpretations and understandings of the Psalms are worthy to be sung. This further means, since there is no New Testament equivalent to the Psalms, that Christians are called to compose hymns that are faithful to the word of Christ. Because we must worship God in spirit and truth. Remember how John begins. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And Jesus is harking back to that when he says, we must worship God in spirit and truth. But even admitting that the Psalms are to be sung Christianly does not satisfy John 4.24. And, and here's the thing that we've got to say. We're constantly told, well, the Psalms, if they're understood in a Christian way, are adequate. Are they really? No one, did you know this? No one before the coming of Christ believed the doctrine of the Trinity. They didn't believe the opposite of it. They didn't disbelieve it. But you can look in vain from the beginning of the world to the coming of Jesus Christ for anyone to state the doctrine of the Trinity. Is it implicit in the Old Testament? Yes. Is it explicit? No. No one in the Old Testament taught the doctrine of justification with the clarity of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans and Galatians. It was implicit in the Old Testament, but it was not explicit. No one in the Old Testament specifically identified Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. It was implicit in the Old Testament, but it was not explicit. So what is my point? My point is that we must worship God in spirit and truth. It is not sufficient for the Christian heart and for the Christian church to sing words that only make the identity of the Messiah and the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of the Trinity implicit. The Christian heart cries out to say these things with the clarity of New Testament revelation. It cries out to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
That's what the Christian heart wants to sing. And nothing less than that. And nothing that's not as clear as that. Now, that brings me to my third argument. Again, I'm assuming the burden of proof. We are commanded in Scripture to sing new songs in keeping with the progressive revelation of God's redemption. Turn to Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Now, our brother Nathan this morning uh, talked about this passage. He made clear that the picture, the wonderful picture of the lamb who had been slain but was alive, who has seven eyes and seven horns, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, he made it very clear that these psalms, that, that, that this, this, this passage is dealing with the ascension of Christ and his enthronement at the right hand of God. That's what the psalm pictures. It's that specific, historical, redemptive event that's pictured here in the language. And, and it is that event that gives rise to the call we have here to worship God with a new song. And they sang a new song. Well, it was just an old song in a new way. No. <laughs> Sorry. We know what the words of the song were. And the words of this song were new words and new thoughts. Consistent with previous revelation, but all with much greater explicitness. Look at Revelation 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You see the point. New events... New works of God call for new songs. And we are to sing songs that celebrate these new works of God. This, this calls for songs informed and permeated with revelation given in the New Testament. Fourth argument. We are certainly commanded to preach scriptural sermons and pray scriptural prayers. But this does not limit us to only reading sermons found in Scripture or to praying only prayers found in Scripture. My point is that exclusive psalmody is really inconsistent with the rest of worship. Um, the exclusive psalmody view says that in the church's worship, we may only sing translations of Scripture. They're not really inspired because they're translations. Sing translations of Scripture, but consider how inconsistent and strange this is. Exclusive psalmody does not restrict the preaching to the recitation, recitation or reading of Scripture translation. It does not, and we do not, restrict preaching to inspired sermons or translations of biblical sermons. We do not... And exclusive psalmody does not restrict praying to the recitation or reading of biblical prayers. They do not, and we do not, restrict corporate prayer to inspired prayers or translations of biblical prayers. And yet exclusive psalmody does restrict the singing of prayers to only the singing of inspired songs or, at best, translations of biblical hymns. Now we simply ask, why? What's the difference? Why can we preach uninspired sermons? You see how bad that word uninspired is? 
uninspired but scriptural sermons? Why can't we pray uninspired but scriptural prayers, but not sing uninspired but scriptural hymns? It's not equal. Now, this problem is particularly pressing because the Bible does not make a, a, a big, strong distinction between singing and praying. Did you know, according to my count, something like, something above, 20 of the 150 psalms are called prayers. One example is Psalm 17.1, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, give heed to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Fifth, even the reading of Scripture is not restricted to the simple verbatim reading of Scripture, but properly includes the comments interpretations, and translations of the reader. We are to read scripture in public worship. But as I showed you several weeks ago when we talked about this, the reading of scripture in scripture is accompanied with scriptural comments. What does Nehemiah 8.8 say? And they read from the book, from the law of God. Of course, that's all they could do, is they have to do just that. No, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And so, to quote myself, that's always a terrible thing to do, isn't it? To quote yourself. The reading of Scripture may be, and where necessary, should be accompanied by brief explanatory comments. This is clear from its connection with exhortation and teaching in 1 Timothy 4.13. It's clear from the comments made in Nehemiah 8.8. Sixthly, And lastly, a very compelling interpretation of Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, and Colossians 3, 16 and 17, suggests that Paul was not thinking strictly of the book of Psalms in that passage. Now, turn there and I'll explain what I mean. Turn to Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, first of all. Begin with verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Keep your finger there and turn to the parallel passage in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, here's what the exclusive psalmist says about this passage. He says... Psalms, hymns, and songs all are used in the text of the book of Psalms to refer to the book of Psalms. And that's true. Unquestionable. The term song is used to describe Psalms. The term hymn is used to describe Psalms. And the term psalm is used to describe Psalms. That's shocking. But now, the point is this. The problem is this. They say that this is all these words mean. That they're basically synonyms for the Psalms. But the problem is, that word 
spiritual. See it there in Colossians 3.16? See it back there in Ephesians 5.19? Spiritual. Now, Paul, if Paul is just using words that describe psalms, hymns, songs, to describe the psalms, why does he have to say spiritual? Because, of course, all the psalms are spiritual. See, that word spiritual is unnecessary. But then the exclusive psalmist argues, but hey, uh, that word spiritual means inspired. The word idea of something being a spiritual song means it's an inspired song. Well, it could. I think there are probably places in the New Testament where spiritual means inspired. Inspired of the Holy Spirit. God breathed. That's possible. That's possible. But the problem is, it's not the probable meaning of the word here. Because in this context, the word spiritual is not related to the idea of inspiration. It's related to the idea of being filled with the Spirit. Look at Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see, filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in spiritual songs. What, is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Does it mean to be inspired? Of course not. All Christians are and may be filled with the Spirit. In the parallel passage, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What's my point? The point here is that the term spiritual, in all likelihood, is not talking about inspired. It's talking about the kind of things that people sing when they're filled with the Spirit. That's what it's talking about. And there really isn't a good contextual reason to prefer the idea of inspiration over the idea of simply being filled with the Spirit. Well, those are my six arguments. I hope they're helpful to you. Uh, they are that uh, the best interpretation of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 suggests that Paul is not thinking strictly of the book of Psalms, that the reading of Scripture is not restricted to the simple verbatim reading of Scripture, that we, uh, there's something inconsistent between the command, the idea that we are only to sing inspired hymns, but we can preach uninspired sermons and pray uninspired prayers. The fact that we're commanded in Scripture to sing a new song uh, on the basis of new redemptive historical events, the fact that we're commanded in Scripture to worship God in spirit and truth, that is to say in the light of gospel fulfillment and not simply on the basis of Old Testament shadows. And then we are... We also asserted that exclusive psalmists themselves do not sing inspired psalms. They sing translations by fallible men of God's inspired word. Now, said all of that, and now I have to say something that's really convicting to me, and uh, I hope it's encouraging to you. Let me back way up and simply apply Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. The command is, both corporately, but also, I think, by way of implication individually, to speak to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Are we fulfilling both publicly and privately what Paul calls for in these passages? Are we filled with the Spirit and so speaking to one another and to ourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Not just publicly, 
but maybe speaking to our own souls privately. Does the word of Christ richly dwell within us and cause us publicly and privately to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God? Well, I know the answer I have to give to that. Many days of my life, the answer is no. Because I'm not, the word of Christ is not dwelling in me richly. My doubts and my fears and my unbelief are dwelling in me richly. And when we see that happening, we've got to identify it and say, there's something wrong with the way you're feeling right now. It's not your circumstances. It's not your situation. It's your heart that's a problem. And so let's take that to ourselves and ask God to help us. Speak to ourselves and speak to one another. With the filling of the Spirit, with the Word of Christ richly dwelling in us, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your Word, for the fact that it guides us in all of our lives, but especially it guides us when we ask the question, How would you be worshipped when we come to the house of God? Help us, Lord. Teach us. Bless these words to your people. Grant that they might profit from them. In Jesus' name, amen. Grant that they might profit from them. In Jesus' name, amen. Grant that they might profit from them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.